Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. I'm Shawnee Constant, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Bean. Kayfabe, motherfucker. Kayfabe, motherfucker. We are basking in the glory. In the glory. Of the opulent Russell Palace. Chandelier. Russell Palace! Monkey oh, Spike prison style, dude! Boom <laughs> Shakaloo! The scariest of all clowns. Murder Cloud! It's like we've said uh, previously on the show. Mira! I'm fat! You got a fat ass! <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's drinking! Bob Bird's got a big old neck! It's a work! It's a work! Uh, and this is the one. Show. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast scheduled for one, one fall. One fall. One oh, fall. I told you guys I didn't go dead into one fall, so oh. like oh, you were a little ahead of it. This is good though because we still haven't gotten it right, <laughs> and so the uh, the bit works. Why yeah, would it be any sure. different with a guest, right? Yeah, exactly. My name is Chizuk Bean. You are listening to the One Fall Show. As I said, this uh, podcast with a sixty minute time limit. I am joined as always by my co host Shawnee Constant. Hey, sir. How you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. And this week we are joined via the internet by the voice of the world of unpredictable wrestling, Jack Manley. Jack, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk with you. Uh, just got done with New Resolution 2020 last Saturday and feeling good. Now, in the in the world of unpredictable wrestling, you are the announcer slash uh, interviewer, correct? Uh, that's correct. Is I... Uh, it all kind of started because I'd been with the club for about eight months and we were doing promos one night and uh, one of my buddies at the club suggested I come in in a suit. And so I just so happened to look like an interviewer when I came in. Johnny hands me the mic, Johnny Rods, the WWE Hall of Famer who runs our house. And, you know, from the word go, it just it felt like a natural interplay between myself and the other guys uh, who were on our roster. And from there, it's just picked up and blossomed into some. Uh, fantastic opportunities. So you're right there in Manhattan in New York City, right? Uh, the club is actually out in Brooklyn uh, in the Dumbo area. It uh, it was a place where there was a lot of gentrification and urban renewal over the last 15 years. So we moved in about, I think, before my time, probably about three or four years before I started in 2017, they moved to a beautiful house right there, almost directly underneath the Manhattan Bridge, but just a fantastic place to go train. Uh, it also functions as a uh, boxing gym for a lot of world-class uh, talents. In fact, um, that little controversial thing Deontay Wilder did uh, back before one of his title fights last year, I think he was like threatening somebody's family. That was in our house. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, like he was he was over there doing interviews and all that sort of stuff. And our guys are just, you know, over in the ring taking bumps, training. So before we – I want to hear a lot about WUW, which I was able to watch the event over the weekend, and I really enjoyed it. But when you ha going back to 2017, when you started, did you have options uh, in the area you were at or did you decide I want to get into wrestling and this is the closest place to me? What was that little bit of process there in terms of deciding to go to Johnny Rods? And I assume now two years and change later that you're happy with being there. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition? Yeah, well, I will say uh, it's uh, 100 um, percent one of the best things that's ever happened in my life that I ended up under Johnny Rods and learning under him and the boys at WUW. But 
in 2017, when I started looking around, there are genuinely some great options that are around the city. I mean, uh, the success that House of Glory has been having recently with their talents coming up and going to places like AEW is something you have to respect. And there are a lot of places that operate in uh, Staten Island and Queens and other boroughs that really do have a lot of strength. But what pulled me to it was that everything I had heard about Johnny Rods uh, from just watching interviews of people in the business gave me the indication that he was the right kind of guy to learn under because Johnny was uh, for a little background for everybody. He was the guy who worked under Vince McMahon senior in the WWF uh, way back when, you know, the garden was their home. And he was the guy that Vince would always put up against guys to find out what their little ticks were and to find out if they could hang is if you were going to get pushed into the main event against someone like a Bruno or uh, anyone of that ilk, you kind of had to go through Johnny and he had to put you through the paces. And he maintains that attitude to this day is he loves the guys that he trains dearly, but he is not afraid to let you know what's going on with your training. And it makes you, I think, honestly, a more well-rounded person and a more well-rounded athlete. Here in uh, Detroit, we've got a couple of different uh, smaller wrestling organizations and a lot of the talent fluctuate between you know each of the, the different organizations depending on what night a show is or something like that tell me a little bit about what is the new york area like as far as the smaller wrestling promotions well it depends a little bit like wuw is kind of a special case because we do run ourselves earnestly as a club you know you pay your dues to get in and then uh you're there for life you can come in as a member uh, in and out, depending on what happens in your life, no matter what. So it in that way, it functions both as promotion and as a training ground. And unlike a lot of wrestling schools, you don't just have a six-month time limit and then best of luck kid. But we do have a good number of independents around the area and around the Northeast. It is, in a lot of ways, kind of tough to book in New York because the event, the venues can be very small or they can be very far out. Like one of my favorite venues to work in uh, is a place we've gone twice called uh, Laboom. It's an old club out in Queens. And it's a, a great environment, especially for lucha wrestling, but it's the type of place you can only book really if you've got uh, names that you can book on the card as well. Like the shows we did out there, we had with LAX, uh, Juventud, Volador Jr., Dr. Wagner, Demac, like guys who are established names within the industry were working that card with us. Uh, but a lot of the time, it seems like the best breeding ground for it is really guys finding little places like armories or, you know, ballrooms that are uh, unused in sort of the fringes of the five boroughs and putting on events there. So it ends up leading you into some really nice buildings, just places that you wouldn't expect to see wrestling in. But I, it's probably a lot like the scene most places you'd find in the country, honestly, we seem to be in a real boom period where a lot of independents are gaining some momentum and getting their guys out there. And so it becomes an interesting competition and clash of styles that goes on no matter where you are. So I know you from an old Facebook wrestling group, essentially. So I've been following you for a little while. To the best of my recollection, you debuted in a Royal Rumble match, right? Or was very close to that. We called the uh, Rumbo and Dumbo since it's the neighborhood. And... Uh, that tends to be a good place if you're green as hell, the way that I, even after two years, I'm still green as hell. Uh, when you're in that situation, it's a good place to put the guys who are learning the ropes because it doesn't require a lot of bumping. It uh, always, always gets the crowd pumped up. And Battle Royals do a very good job of providing little feature moments 
to get new guys over and to get young guys some clout. And that's a really important thing, I think, is that one one thing that we really do try to do is that when new people come in or when somebody is putting in the time in their training, you we really do try to put a focus on them and bring them up because it elevates everybody in that locker room. It really seems like you guys have that sort of NXT modern kind of um, view of training in terms of the the idea of a school unto itself, as you said, where you basically pay, you get your uh, quote unquote degree and then you get the door. <laughs> it's it's that sort of that's sort of like the old school hardcore way. This this seems to make more sense to me, right? You build a team of people who know how to lift each other up so that when it's time to, you know, beat each other down, yeah. um, you have an understanding of the entire thing top to bottom. Whereas uh, in the WWF days, you know, it was uh, about keeping the performers in the dark so that you could, um, you know, manipulate paychecks in the background and create leverage over people in weird and, you know, frankly, sort of uh, gangster like ways. Uh, I like the idea of what you guys are doing. Are you, are you, you find that you're really flourishing in that, that uh, environment? I think so. And I think there, I think there are a couple things there that are interesting to unpack is that Johnny really does run WUW in a very special way is that the way that the training goes down, is it something that he calls the wheel? And the idea is that everybody at the club is responsible for everybody else's level of training and make sure that they bring them along to be up to the standards that we try to set. And he does also run it old school in that, you know, he wants you to really learn in a very professional and uh, polished manner what it means to be as a worker responsible to a booker, what it means to be given an assignment uh, when you have a show and to fulfill it to what the booker needs you to fulfill it to. Um, it's, it's interesting because we live in a really beautiful era for wrestling right now where there is a lot of competition in the ideologies that are in play is there are a lot of workers out there who really want to have as much control as they can over their matches and the way that they go down. And I think there is something to be said for that. I'm not going to, I'm not here to knock any style as being above the other or not, but I like our style because it makes me feel as though I can really flourish in any professional environment that I, you know, hopefully end up in someday. It's really an opportunity to take the heart of the business seriously and to put it upon yourself to have responsibility within the business. And that's really the biggest thing about what Johnny teaches us that I think impacts me every time I go out. Like I know when I get on commentary that I have to be the first believer in everything that is going on in the ring because it elevates the house because there is an emotional reaction and a story attached to what's being done in the ring. And it is my responsibility to not drag any of the guys or to bury anybody on commentary. I have to take my responsibility to them as seriously as I possibly can. So in, in the ways that it prepares me professionally, I, I don't think I could have asked for a better opportunity. I'm real interested and you can, you know, it's, it's kind of like, talking to a magician and asking how does the trick work i'm really interested <laughs> with some of the the details of in your experience how these things have worked and if you're not allowed to tell me then you're not allowed to tell me and that's fine um but one of the things i want to go back to that you said you debuted in what was essentially like a battle royal style of match in your experience how do you plan those out like do you get all the dudes in a room and be like okay this guy's gonna have his moment and then this guy's gonna have his moment and this guy's you know, are there are there dudes in the ring that are like the senior guys get to call? Okay, it's his it's his turn. In your experience, how has that worked? 
It can genuinely vary. Uh, what it comes down to, I think, uh, whether it be a battle royal or any match, is it comes down to what particular sort of mindset guys want to work in. There are certain guys who really flourish when they are putting together the story physically, when they're going over spots that they want to do or moments that they want to get to to get the crowd behind them or to get the crowd to you know curse their name. And then there are some guys, and I, I kind of like this approach. It's uh, something I learned from listening to Bret Hart uh, during his interviews is I like to go into a match personally and think about, okay, what's our story going to be? is I like the idea that there is an underlying narrative point that uh, you know we want to get to as the people who are competing and that we are good enough in our training and in our ingrained sense of wrestling to beat the absolute tar out of each other, knowing that we're going to get to those moments because we've said that we want to get to those moments. And both, you know, both styles are met a lot of the time with, you know, varying success and failures. Like there are times with, you know, in any wrestler will tell you there are times when there are missed spots. There are times when there are missed narrative cues, but at the end of the day, uh, it really does come down to personal preference in a lot of ways. And that's about as deep as I'll go into it is there's a great quote by Roddy Piper where he said, uh, even if they audience know, thinks they know 98% of the business, if they don't know 2%, then they still don't know anything. And mm. It's it's one of those things where like there's a lot of truth in the way that you're unpacking that question to me, but at the same time there are little details in there that just go down to the connection you have with the people that you're working with. So after that Royal Rumble, it wasn't too long before you had a fairly serious injury. Is that the case? And uh, are are you cool with talking about that? Yeah, you know, I actually it, it's a it's been uh, kind of a through line, honestly, with the first two years of my training. Is it's uh, you know, it's difficult to deal with because it feels like I've gotten a lot of false starts, but I've had a litany of injuries. So it started out with um, in the summer of 2018, I was training and I uh, had a misstep on a cardio machine and basically sprained up the entirety of my left leg. So I couldn't really, you know, thankfully, I didn't break a bone or tear any cartilage or anything like that. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but um, I just sprained the hell out of the leg and I had to take it easy for two to three months. And so I lost training time there. Then um, March of 2019, I was working a very simple up and over spot with one of my boys at WUW. And, uh, you know, that simple spot, you're running towards somebody in the ring. They grab the uh, ring post and basically leap their body over you while you still run to the corner. And the key in this is to not hesitate. Well, I hesitated. And so my buddy ended up right on my shoulders and my right hamstring gave out. So another two months lost there. And then finally in October, I, I'd love to say that this one happened in the ring, but I was literally getting off of a, um, a shift at a job and I took a bad step in my apartment and bam, I sheared uh, completely a part of my medial meniscus off in my right knee. So that's what I'm currently recovering from actually. It sounds like a lot of it is uh, leg related. Yeah, it's funny is I've always like I always have really loved leg training, but a lot of it comes with understanding a need to be more responsible with how I work out and how I have to manage myself is I think that one of the most important things I've learned in the two years that I've wrestled is that if you get injured, it is honestly your fault. You really can't fault the guy across from you 
for anything that happens to you in the heat of the moment uh, when you're in a match or anything like that. It really is your responsibility to understand what you can do better in that situation and to try and take better care of yourself in the future. So a lot of what my training has been has been literally like uh, you know a physiologist trying to f- figure out as many primary sources as possible to sort of aggregate like what I can do for my workouts, what I can do to make sure my body is strong and make sure that I'm not doing undue damage at the cost of just looking good. And it's an interesting thing to have because I like I started very late in the business because I started when I was 27 years old. Most guys are starting somewhere in the 18 to 23 range. So I really do have to limit myself a little bit in terms of how hard I go, but I supplement that with really trying to just be a kind of a cardio monster. And that may be where I pay for with my legs, but ultimately at the end of the day, it just comes down to me learning about taking care of myself and learning how to manage a body in this business. Now you see a lot, um, especially in the WWE, when somebody goes down with an injury, if they're at all any good on the microphone, sometimes they'll move them over to uh, the commentary table. Most recently, you see that with like Samoa Joe. Is that something uh, that they kind of kept you in the in the loop by saying, "Hey, we can have this guy commentate"? I mean, that may have possibly been part of it. I mean, Johnny's thing with our training, and he makes a very big point of telling this to the boys, is that. Ultimately, when you're a house our size and you have opportunities thrown at you to go to the big leagues, you don't know what that opportunity is going to be or what form it's going to take. Someone could try to hire you to be an official. Someone could try to hire you to be a commentator, like the spot I find myself in in terms of what my future prospects might end up being. You might end up being um, you know, ring crew. It doesn't matter what opportunity that you're going to get. The point is, is that you have to train and you have to understand the business to really see it. And I think that the fact that I try to at very least check in and come around even when I'm injured had a bit of an effect where people did genuinely understand that I have a real love for this. And that, I mean, there are, there are a few things in life that I've ever loved as much as I love wrestling. I love the wrestling business. And so I think Johnny really picked up on that very quickly and wanted to figure out a way to utilize my talents to the best of my ability. And he is kind of a genius when it comes to figuring out where guys can use that talent and what buttons to push for a guy to bring out their best performance. Let's talk a little bit about the WUW's women's division. One thing that was very impressive, there was a women's tag team match with a special referee uh, in the weekend's event. And technically speaking, I thought the women were just on point. Absolutely fantastic. That's that's something we take a lot of pride in, honestly, is we've got one of the best women's divisions out there, I think, for an independent. And I that's a hill I'm absolutely willing to die on because those girls are in their training every single week, multiple times a week. I don't think I've ever been at the club where I haven't seen at least one of our uh, women in the ring training. And... I think one of the things that I, I used to be somebody when I was outside the industry, I was very skeptical of things like intergender wrestling. But now having actually gotten in the ring and working with some of these girls in my training and being taught by them, it is one of these things where these, these girls can go just as well as the guys on our roster. And we all know it. And it shows up every time that we get to put on a show and it shows up in the work, like with our special referee, I like the, that match really worked for me on commentary because she was being such an incredible heel that, but despite being a very tiny girl that when she got her butt whipped at the very end there by uh, the official, 
everyone was cheering, even though she technically she was the smaller girl and you'd think that that would get pity. But her heel work was so good that she got the reaction that we wanted from that match. And it's absolutely beautiful. You said that um, you, you've been training for a couple of years and, and that you absolutely, you, you know, you love the business. When you started, what was your idea for your character, for your Jack Manley character? Because I get the impression you obviously didn't see it going in the direction it's going now. Not that that's a bad right. thing. But I'm curious, what was your initial like, this is this is the guy I'm going to be? Well, I, uh, you know, it's funny is I know a lot of guys do think up a ring name and think of a gimmick off the bat is I really I, I consider myself kind of blessed because my parents had the fortitude of naming me like an action star. Wait, so Jack Manley is literally your name? Yeah, no, Jack Manley is actually my name. I could, you know, I would send you a picture of my driver's license if it wouldn't get cloned immediately. But <laughs> No, that's awesome because I, I work in radio and ran into the exact same thing, whereas, like, I figured I would get a radio name once I got on the air. And they're like, no, just use your name. Keep working on getting that license you from You make them. the hook, okay. you throw it out, and then you're being real. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> that, is, that, that is actually, it's, it's very true. Is I get that I get that a lot. It's one of these things where it all, but my name always sort of has been this thing where I, you know, was always not just jack to people in my life in college and stuff like that, is people would always call me my full name, Jack Manley. And so I knew that there was a connection there, that the way that people responded to it. So I've always like, been very confident, not just because of the way that people react to my name, but I'm confident in it because I like the idea of trying to be authentic with my gimmick because I essentially uh, am in a position being a play-by-play commentator where by necessity, I need to be a babyface. And what I am starting to play around with a little bit and, you know, trying to, you know, work into the character is a lot of my heritage, like my, um, aunt who is a lovely woman crazy and out in new mexico living you know off of her retirement fund but a lovely woman uh has done like all the genealogy on our family and we were like traces back to like northern ireland 1500 years ago and so there's all this bevy of history of the family name that we have and as a little bit of a personal thing i'm in a position where i'm one of the first members of my family who has had really good opportunities at things like a private education a private university and really, you know, incredible opportunities to build myself. And so it's like I'm in this first generation of the family that gets to seize upon where we are and really build up the family name into something that we can be truly proud of. And so I think there's a resonance there as a baby face where I can use what I know about my family to really elevate uh, how I'm perceived as a good guy. It is, it is a little bit white meat, uh, you know, I know the anti-hero mold tends to get a bigger pop these days, but I do genuinely think there is, if you're going to work babyface, a space in the business for the white meat babyface gimmick. If you look at, say, a guy who does it to perfection is uh, Mustafa Ali. Yeah. A, a guy who is just eminently relatable because he talks about what he's feeling. He is unashamed of the life that he lives and very proud of the people around him. And it just emanates through his performance and through his promos in a way that I think is very special. When you started out, was that the, the type of character that you were like, I'm going to play that guy? Everybody, everybody wants to be a heel. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, when you can kind of get permission to do anything, as long as you just don't touch certain third rails that will, you know, get people to leave your house and not want to come back. Like you do have a, you have to be professional about the way you go after people. But, you know, even my friends uh, have a habit of telling me that I talk too much. 
which I do. And so a lot of what I perceived about, you know, getting in is that, you know, I'm going to be this heel that really focuses on solid promo work and, you know, being in that kind of mold that almost you don't get to see enough in wrestling, I think, where somebody just talks and talks and talks. And then there is that just sweet release of just watching their ass get handed to them. And that's that, that's a, that's a role I've always sort of wanted to sure. be in in a lot of ways. But the realities of where I'm at means that I need to do what I can to embrace the gimmick that I'm given. There are plenty of stories out there about guys in, you know, companies since wrestling started getting, you know, gimmicks that they don't like and that they can't really take to. And then there are as many stories I find of guys who get a gimmick that they're not happy with, but make it everything that it possibly can be. And if I'm going to be somebody who wants to be a professional in this business and be somebody that can be trusted, I've got to put myself in that ladder mold. I have to embrace what I'm given. Otherwise, I feel I'm doing a disservice to the people around me. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things when you get to the highest levels with WWE in that you, you have to be able to, how, how do you rectify the fact that you're going to have to be able to trust your promoter while also understanding that you may work for a promotion that's going to ask you to do things that aren't necessarily in your long-term best interest. I would, I would guess at your level, that's not something you have to worry about too often, but it's something you always have to keep in mind, right? I think it also depends a little bit on how you sort of look at being in the business. Like one thing I think about is let's, let's look at a gimmick that a lot of people sort of in like fans would probably not want to respond to on the higher levels. Let's look at uh, back in the a uh, couple of years ago when Kurt Hawkins had his losing streak. Now, okay. Any, I feel like any worker who is worth their salt would kill to be in Kurt Hawkins' position because you're still working every single night. You're still getting opportunities to perform your craft and perform for an audience. And even if it's not going to you know, vaunt you into this sort of conversation of greats of all time because of the way that it's looked at by the fans, you're doing really important work for the promotion because they do it's it tells me that they trust a guy like Kurt Hawkins enough to where they are willing to put him in the ring with literally anybody and know that he can help them get to the best match possible they can do with the time that they're given um, another guy to look at is our truth I'd kill to have that guy's career even when he ended up uh stuck in a gimmick because he had one line flub and he ends up stuck in uh, kind of a difficult position as a comedy act, but he, you know, pulled one over on everybody and got the comedy gimmick that he does over. And examples like that to me are really compelling when you look at him in wrestling because it really does show you what it means as a worker to love the business. Is that do you love it enough to take an opportunity that isn't this sort of fantasy booking that you have for yourself in your head? And if you really do love the business, the answer should be, of course, I'll do that. You know, I, I'm going to be a, a good soldier and I'm going to be a responsible professional within whatever company I'm in. And I think that's a important thing to keep in mind, because the thing is with being a wrestler is that genuinely nobody owes you anything. You, you do owe it to yourself to make your own way, but nobody owes it to you to give you a leg up or to give you an opportunity that you're not showing that you're ready for and responsible enough to handle. And so the big thing for me at the level I'm at is working to prove that I am worth vesting trust and responsibility in, I think is the best way to put it. 
sort of baseline entrepreneurial good business mentality, right? You constantly grow a little bit each day in a, perhaps a number of different variables. You you may think that, uh, well, getting my body in shape is the highest priority, but you also understand, well, if I'm working the uh, announcing for uh, an event, that gives me an opportunity to shine or to improve myself in different ways. Exactly. And as you said earlier, all those things will lead you to be able to thrive in almost any environment, give you a versatile toolkit. Exactly. I mean, and that's, and that's really the thing is it is just like my way of fully embracing the industry is I think that whenever, you know, people find what it is that they feel to be their calling or the thing that motivates them more than anything, I think that there is a genuine willingness to put yourself in that position where you want to take what happens as it comes and you want to refine yourself in a way that other people notice and polish yourself as a professional and really live up to that dream of yours rather than getting too stuck on the way that you thought it was going to go. Because we genuinely, we only do get one go around at this whole thing. So I can, you know, be dissatisfied with a particular place that I find myself, or I can say, I'm going to make this niche my own. You know, I'm going to do the, you know, I may be injured, but I can do the best commentary possible because I want the guys in this house to succeed. And I want this house to go over as much as it possibly can go over. And knowing that we have the athletes to do that just makes it an absolute uh, pleasure. When I was looking at you doing commentary over the weekend, the two things that occurred to me was that if I was in that seat, first off, I would have a very difficult time maintaining the frequency of words that are necessary. Now, you said that even your friends say that you're a good talker, right? Uh, so Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. Thank you. That, that translates well into the business. Uh, and then also, of course, you're telling sort of, you're batching information and trying to tell stories to people who you don't necessarily want to batch information, right? So you can't use the exact same phrases too often or something. You sort of give up, you give up sort of the... Um, the, the, the peak behind the curtain that you can still protect if you're an excellent speaker. When you started, what, what did you find to be challenging and what did you find that you thrived in in terms of announcing? And, and what are you finding overall that even if you weren't to pursue announcing in the future, what have you gained from this process of having to go from focusing on a very physical to a very mental uh, expertise? I mean, it's been an extremely vital experience to my development as a human being, I think, is that uh, for one thing, it is something that really does help with your confidence in your own public speaking to know that you're, you've got this forum that you are handed, whether it be Twitch or anywhere else. But when you're in that box, you understand that there is a real need to be there to fill in the gaps for the audience that they can't necessarily get just by watching something uh, that they have may not have any frame of reference for. We don't know if it's you know first time somebody's watching a show or if it's the fifth time. But the important thing was when I started was that I had to get away from uh, overusing my superlatives. Is the really was my biggest problem. Is you find yourself when you really do get caught up in the action, you'll catch yourself when you watch it back using like. You'd be like, oh, hey, I used the word amazing about 20 times in those last three matches. I need to really watch that. Uh, you know, things of that nature, little, you know, phrases that come into your commentary that you know you can do better in terms of what you know about the way you want to craft language. A good example is the beatdown we had on the show. It gave me an opportunity to really sell being horrified by what I was seeing 
but it also gave me an opportunity to use words very sort of economically. Is I didn't have to overblow what was being seen. I just had to react to it. And that's something I've gotten a little bit better at. And the thing that, I mean, I, I really do enjoy what I'm doing with the commentary. And enough people have told me that they appreciate what I'm doing on it to where it does feel to me like a legitimate and fulfilling pathway forward. But I think moving forward, the biggest thing I have to do is something that um, I learned about from Jim Ross, uh, listening to one of his interviews, called uh, laying out. Just learning when to leave gaps in the action and to let the audience synthesize a big moment. And granted, because occasionally I'll be doing what I call Gordon Sullying it and just doing a show on my own. Sometimes, you know, depending on a setup, I may or may not have a guest commentator or a play or a uh, color commentator with me. Uh, but it can be very easy to get very caught up in the rapid nature of the action and to not leave those spaces. And so moving forward, I think part of it is for me being good enough to trust that what's going on in the ring is going to be gripping enough visually that I don't need to say as much. Um, you know, I can get better by doing less. You said you started uh, when you were 27. What was the, what was the thing that you saw? Was there a match? Was there a performer? Was there a promo or something? What was the thing that made you go, I want to do that? Well, it, it took me 15 years from seeing that match to get into the business because I've been a wrestling fan since I was a little kid, but I don't know how many people would call to this match specifically, but when I was 12 years old, I watched the Raw where Jeff Hardy had the ladder match for the undisputed title against The Undertaker. Oh, it's one of my and favorite matches ever. I just I just remember that being uh, stunning, not just for the way that it happened, but now with that I can watch with wiser eyes, the way that it gets everybody involved over. The commentators, the workers, the audience even gets over in the way that they are reacting so naturally to Jeff Hardy struggling that. And I just saw that and I thought to my as a kid, without knowing the, that context, I just saw all of that and thought to myself that that was kind of a really beautiful and special moment. So that was kind of the spark. But the guy who really ended up becoming the person that I would, you know, in my wildest dreams, I wish I could model myself after is Edge, who I think does not get nearly enough credit for being genuinely one of the best people to ever do it. And it was what it was about him for me is that it was how subtly great he was at everything. Yeah. Because he wasn't just that he had physical presence or that he was funny on the mic or that he could be the most reviled villain that you could possibly imagine, that he could get a real reaction out of people, that his matches were always crisp. It was that he did little things in the ring that made his matches special. Like, a lot of guys, they'll come out of a near fall and you won't get much of a reaction other than continue to the next spot. Edge would come out of a near fall, eyes bulging, pulling on his hair, complaining to the referee, doing whatever he could to engage the audience in the story that was being told. And so I watched his, I watched his career with as much intent as I possibly could and just feel like the guy really embodies what it means to love the business and to really throw all of yourself into what you're doing in the ring. So that would be the sort of the basis for what really made me fall in love with the industry. Who are some of the uh, either indie stars or sort of guys that are just getting into the what, three big promotions now, could we say? Yeah. But who are some of the guys that you look to and say, okay, that's a path that I think I might want to follow. And you're sort of watching them intently knowing that you're going to get up a step or two and be in that place if everything keeps, you know, if you keep grinding. 
That's a really good question. I mean, it's it's weird. Is I honestly don't come you know try to compare my guys t- or compare myself to a lot of other guys. Uh, I think what it is is that I see guys who really invest the effort in themselves to grow as talents every single match are the guys that I really want to emulate. Like uh, to give an example, there are guys I watch like Pete Dunn who. I'm always blown away that that guy improves every single time that he does a match and he looks for new and innovative ways to craft the time that he's given. You know, I look at AEW and I really am very uh, taken by a guy like Jungle Jack Perry, who it's this, you can feel this real slow burn to him to where I'm pretty positive that guy is going to be a world champion within five years. We just don't know when it's going to happen because it's going to be a slow build to getting him there. But things like I I look at the ways in which guys are built and the ways in which they build themselves. And that really tends to be my pathway forward is to just see the way that hard work really does get rewarded. And that wrestling is kind of one of the last marketplaces of ideas that truly exists. And so getting to be a part of that and to exchange that, I think is what motivates me to get better, motivates me to take whatever pathway is offered to me. You mentioned uh, before we cut the mics on that uh, one of your favorite events, much less match types, is the Royal Rumble. And I I know that everybody's got like either a match type or an event that uh, they're drawn to that is one of their favorites. Why does the Royal Rumble uh, grab you so – why do you enjoy it so much? I think because when it's done right, it – is one of the best means of facilitating stories and dramatic moments for people in wrestling, no matter where you are on the card, is that everybody has an opportunity to get their shine and to tell the best story that they possibly can. I I know there's a lot of love from people for the early 90s, late 80s, and those I, I do enjoy those greatly. I love the Ric Flair victory in 92. I love Hogan's back-to-back victories in 90 and 91. But the era that's special to me is, and it might be biased, is the era when I was a teenager in the thousands, is that from about 2001 to, I'd say, 2008, every single rumble to me was just absolutely pitch perfect in the way that it let everybody who needed to revolve around each other going into WrestleMania season find their level and find the guys that they were going to tell stories with. And when it's done to absolute perfection, like it was, I think, in both 2001 and 2007, then the Rumble itself becomes its own long-form story that has its own beats and introductions of characters and deaths and, you know, dreams fulfilled or dream shattered. It's an unbelievable way of just bringing together narrative in one place in wrestling. I, I, you know, I could speak about it for hours and it gives everyone a chance to have a moment, right? Even if it's the smallest of moments, it's something you can tie back to because to me, wrestling is such a story of minor pivots or the, uh, maybe what may can look like a large swerve, but in reality, there are just sort of a few simple sort of swerves that take place, but it's a matter of like a good comedian understanding when to hit the room with that, with that punchline that's going to get the pop, right? It's sort of a, uh, what an Othello, there used to be commercials for the board game, a minute sure. to learn a lifetime to master. Oh, right. And uh, it's a matter of, I, I, I'm a huge fan of stand up comedy 
uh, big fan of wrestling. And when I when I listened to your commentary, I looked at things through those two lenses, right? Reading the room and giving everyone a chance to have that moment. Like you were talking about the uh, the winless streak. That's something that he has with him in terms of a brand forever. Now, of course, you can take it very literally and say, well, what an awful brand to have. But that's simply not the point, right? It's, right, exactly. it's a matter of having that moment, something to pivot off of, something to build off of. And I do love the f- it's in 2019 when essentially the entire wrestling story was AEW versus WWE. The Royal Rumble, I think we forget, had two just absolutely fantastic Rumble matches. Yeah. Just bangers. Yeah, absolutely. That unfortunately weren't lived up to in terms of the year to come. But, uh, I mean, I have not watched. I've been taking some time off of wrestling despite the fact that we just had what appears to be an all-timer at uh, Wrestle Kingdom. I'll have to double back on that. you, you, You need to do yourself a favor and watch that match. It is as beautiful as what Okada and Omega did a couple of years ago. I, I mean, the Tokyo Dome shows were fantastic. You guys are referring to Okada and Naito? Uh, referring to Ibushi and uh, Okada. Oh, okay. Okay. It's just, it's, it's an unreal, it's an unreal uh, story that those two told. And unlike, as I, I love the Kenny Omega, Kazuchi Okada matches, particularly the first one. But the nice thing about this one is there wasn't a moment like the top rope dragon suplex where I thought Okada was dead. Oh, well, we talk about that off mic. The, the fact that uh, New Japan continues to push the danger level, right? I mean, you have had essentially two broken necks, and now those two players have come back. And it seems as though the it seems as though the lesson is you get to come back. Right. Uh, that, that's one thing that always concerns me in New Japan. Now, of course, it makes for the highest octane cards, right? I mean, you almost never the, the adrenaline is just huge, partially because of the daredevil nature of things but does that does that concern you at all the uh the unwillingness to accept that if you break your neck you're in uh, gonna have a real problem as a worker i mean i i think it's there's a bargain that you make with yourself when you're an athlete no matter what you do like i like i played football for six years when i was in middle school and high school and one of the first things you do when you are being brought into football is that your you know trainer for your school sits you all down in a classroom and shows you a video of just play after play of guys lowering their heads and getting paralyzed. Like I watched, I genuinely was shown a tape like this when I was about 12 years old. It's like a goddamn snuff tape. <laughs> no, I mean, well, well, here's the thing is that uh, this was in 2002. So this was roughly five years. Before we actually admitted to ourselves. We knew what concussions were bad. Sure. But, uh, but for what we quote unquote knew at the time, it was an induction to, okay, here's what you're getting yourself into. Here's the worst case scenario for what can happen. And so I think that it's tough for me to judge how anyone other than myself should feel about it. Personally, I am very hopeful, knock on wood, that nothing like that ever happens to me. But at the same time, I can't speak for somebody like the, you know, I can't speak for a guy like Katsuyori Shibata, who um, his career is now over. He's never going to be medically cleared. I would say, I mean, I, if I were to speak for him, whatever I were to say about how he feels about the industry or his injury would probably be wrong. Same thing with a guy like Hiromu Takahashi, who was able to come back from one of the most devastating injuries I've ever seen in a wrestling ring. And uh, I don't think that it comes down really to violence when people get injured. I think that Wrestling has a place for every different style. Like WUW, we focus very much on in-ring based action, doing it 
fairly close to the you know style you see professionally in WWE and AWC. But I understand completely that there is an absolute place for guys like Jimmy Havoc and Nick Gage who ramp up the ultra violence to quote clockwork orange and tap into that desire because there are fans who do want to see those things like death matches and the brutality of new Japan. I just think what it comes down to is that every worker has to make a bargain with themselves for how physical they're willing to be when they go into matches because no one is ever, no worker worth their salt is ever going to force you into doing something that you don't know or that you're not comfortable with is that guys will work their spots out of matches to make sure that they're taking care of you. And that's the biggest thing that I can speak to about the way that that style sort of goes with the ebb and flow of what fans want. Well, if all goes well, next week we're going to have an interview with somebody who has a story about a uh, an ECW star of the past. New Jack. So, yeah, hopefully you don't ever have to face anybody who doesn't have your best interest in mind. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think I think I I can't speak intelligently on mass transit, but I, you know, it it seems to me like New Jack probably just had a sort of a a very heated moment that we've all blown sort of into this thing where he's an irresponsible worker. Is there there are a lot of stories? I will say this to his credit. There are a lot of stories out there about him caring about guys and him really taking care of himself is I think that. As bad as that incident is, we do overblow it in context of his career. That's an awesome perspective. I appreciate that. Let's talk about something a little more fun than concussions and neck injuries. Yeah, no problem. Seeing as we have you here, seeing as you love the Royal Rumble, let's play a little impromptu game. I want to go around the table and I want to know what is, in your opinion, the prime number to draw in the Royal Rumble? Ooh, good question. Um, I'll start because I I think, and, and this is you know kind of low-hanging fruit, but I think 27 is is exactly where you want to be in the Royal Rumble. You're not dead last, but you're in you're more than likely in those bot, those top 4. I think that's very interesting because if you're not being pushed at that point, you would you would like to think that you're going to be pushed, right? Right. right. Um, you know, I often felt that way though, but the Andre the Giant Royal Rumble, you'd always think that whoever's going whoever wins that, right. you know, there's a trophy, there's some kind a King of the Rings the new, for the longest the time. The- <laughs> Boy, I I sure wish there was more continuity. <laughs> seems like having one very aged man running 100% of the things maybe speaks to a little looseness around the edges. But right. uh, I think that's a great call there. I, I would like to go earlier, though. I think yeah. I, I like the number 13 spot. You get to play off of the unlucky nice. number thing. You get to create a moment. You're probably, uh, you know, if I'm involved, I'm getting chucked over the rope immediately. It's, yeah, it's so all about me trying to get a good stare down. That's you my don't, only. You don't have any any uh, hopes of actually winning the rumble, but you want your moment. Right. Absolutely. So 13 yeah. is good for you. What about you, Jack? I have to say, if it, it, it differs, honestly, if I'm a baby face, I want to be coming in fairly early. I want some time to get a good moment, get the crowd behind me, and then I want to get absolutely decimated so that I have an opportunity to make a comeback and to really show out again and get the most out of the audience I possibly can. If I'm a heel, I want to come in probably 29 or 30 because I want every opportunity I can to screw somebody out of the ring. If I can get one guy out by just pulling him over the ropes before I even enter, you know, more fair play. Or, you know, if I'm a heel and I'm unlucky to get, say, you know, number seven, something like that, I'd definitely just do a Jerry Lawler and hide under the ring. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually, that's one of my favorite Royal Rumble spots is I think it was the 2001 where uh, Road Dog just like grabbed the bottom rope with his arms and legs. It's absolutely fantastic because you see guys come. All he does is he stays in that position where he's clinching the rope. And all he does is just shake his head vigorously. Like, no, 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 no. He just, no. 
No, you're not taking me. No, I'm still bitter about uh, the year that Rusev held, uh, hit under the ring. Uh, yet another disappointing Rusev moment. And uh, also, I still stand by Axelmania. Axelmania? Yeah. See, I, I clearly still <laughs> in my heart remember the 40 man Royal Rumble that, uh, oh man, now I'm going to forget his name. Alberto De Rio won the match. He Del won Rio. the match, but yeah. he won it over. Um, Santino Morella. Santino ah. got knocked through the ropes early in the match and was knocked silly. And then Alberto Del Rio was celebrating as if he had won. And then you just kind of see Santino stagger up on the floor behind him and be like, wait, wait, I'm still in. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I always thought the real tragedy of that rumble was that they were telling an excellent story in that rumble through the first 25 picks because you had CM Punk getting all of his yeah. Nexus buddies in there. And then you had John Cena tearing apart the Nexus. And it was a real opportunity to kickstart that feud between Cena and Punk. But Punk got thrown out pretty quickly. I, I, will, I will say, though, I, I, I am, you know, one of the things that did get me back into wrestling. Because there was a brief sort of two lessons I had where I was in, like, late years of high school and early college where I wasn't really watching a lot. But it was CM Punk in 2011 sitting down on stage that got me back into wrestling. And I will still, as, as much respect as there is for the Okada Omega trilogy in this past decade, I still rate CM Punk John Cena as my personal favorite match that I saw during the decade. And I still think it's one of the most perfectly crafted matches I've ever seen. Oh yeah. It's got so much emotion to it. Like I think even a layman can walk into that match and, and understand immediately what's going on. And the stakes are fairly high. Like I've watched that match probably somewhere around 20 times and when the crowd pops for Punk's entrance, I still yeah. get goosebumps. Like I can't, I can't think of a house in the last ten years that cared so much about the result of a match as that crowd in Chicago on that night. It, it's, it's like that's what if you're a wrestler and you're trying to book yourself into your ultimate dream, that's it. Is getting that reaction for anything that you do that sort of that unbridled love just that it, 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 it is what we do this for all right so we're gonna we're getting near our 60 minute time limit we're gonna have to wrap it up here shortly but let me you're very very uh, diplomatic and i like that i appreciate that a lot about you but what do you think about the fa the the highly airing although uh highly rating lana bobby lashley wedding fuck you bobby i hope you're listening Oof. well here's what i'll here's what i'll say about it and i, I don't know if this is effective talked about but i think it says a lot more about the workers who are involved Liv morgan lana lashley and rusev that they are not just going through that and dealing with that criticism that has come the way that that went down but they are really doing everything they can to throw themselves into that story and to invest in it. And I may be the you know one man on this hill, but I think that when you put in hard work the way that those four are on something like this, you can get it over even if it seems like the concept of it being over is absurd. And all it really – it gets back to what I was talking about earlier is that what it really comes down to – if you love this business and you want to be a professional in this business, you have to throw yourself into whatever you're given. And God bless them. I know that there is a lot of uh, difficult politics around it and that there's a lot of difficult uh, things with regards to the portrayal of the LGBT community that is very worthy of discussion. I'm not trying to deny that. But I will say that 
the investment that they put into me is very impressive. I agree. They're all professionals. And I think that's one thing when you have characters who don't necessarily have a long, uh, high profile history, it's easier to just say, well, I didn't particularly love Bobby Lashley or I didn't particularly love Rusev or any of these people involved. So it's easy. And I will say for the record, Lashley is a good dude. I worked a show with him back in March in 2018, not with him. I was on the card. And he was, when we were breaking down the ring, we were cleared up, set up. He was the one guy who stayed around and let guys pick his brain and gave us tips about the industry. So Lashley, as far as I'm concerned, is a cool dude. Oh, and it's almost, I mean, he's not undeniable life, right? I mean, he's in the military. Yeah. Uh, he got has beat a, up by his sisters. He got beat up, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> he's had some unfor- unfortunate. Fun fact, one of the. One of the one of the sisters, the uh, uh, one with the broom, is actually an alumnus of WUW. Oh, that's excellent, Jack. What does the future hold for the uh, voice of WUW, and where can people find you online? Okay, so you can get to us first and foremost. You can get to us at WUW Wrestling on Instagram and on Facebook. That's also where you're going to find us on Twitch.tv. Um, and as for my own social media, you can find me on Instagram at Manly Jack Manly. That tends to be the primary way in which I produce my wrestling content. Um, so I think that's every plug. Um, we do not yet have a uh, show date for our next show. We usually roll them out typically once a month to so once every six weeks. So uh, when I get that date, I'll make sure to pass it along to you, gentlemen. And do you have a prognosis as when you're going to be back in the ring? Yes, indeed. I actually just saw my um, surgeon yesterday for my six-week post-op. He said about another month until I can do whatever I want to do. So I'm training right now. I'm getting back in the gym and getting strength back in the knee, but it's looking like early February. I should be back in a ring near you. Very exciting, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great interview. I've been very, uh, I've been thoroughly enthralled with this conversation, and I want to thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I honestly, I can't wait to have you back on the show. There's a bunch of <laughs> stuff that I feel like I said, I want to pick your brain as the magician. I want to know how it's how the sausage is made. I will say there's that 2% that I got to protect. That's fair. That's <laughs> absolutely fine. I'm cool with that. I have absolutely no objections to someone living in the uh, Roddy Piper mold. No. Yeah, we, got, we got to bring kayfabe back. Well, wrap us up, Shawnee. Yeah. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. And uh, thanks again to Jack Manley for being on. Have fun, everyone. Be safe. Don't fall in the hole. Oh man. Ants. Ants. Wiggle wiggle woo. Wiggle wiggle woo. Wiggle wiggle woo. Was a stupid idea from bad creative and all that's gone. The other one is, uh, that guy's a few corn dogs shy of a picnic. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic, that's like a Jim Ross, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think uh, in a lot of ways, ECW, which actually has a lot of our alumni, well, like Taz and D- the Dudleys were trained at where we trained. So, uh, like, ECW was very good about fan involvement and bringing their fans in as part of the show. And they really, they really did let that genie out of the bottle in a lot of ways. And I think people to this day, since ECW died, have been trying to find a way to replicate that energy. And with something like NWA, 
I don't think it's best suited for that because NWA is a real callback to, in particular, Georgia Championship Wrestling, which is just phenomenal to go back and watch, but was a very highly produced, highly scripted studio show. And I think that's where NWA runs into its issues. If, if NWA was trying to go more the route of, say, a GCW, where the fans are very vital to the storytelling that they do in that house, I, I think that it would be better for their product. But I think with what they're trying to do, it really does throw off some of what they're trying to accomplish. Well, and that's the thing, too, With the, is the crowd has to kind of police itself. It's almost like going to a rock show or something right, like that. Right, yeah. Like yeah. You, you see, like, the crowd has to have a respect for the performer that, you know, when somebody tries to put themselves over, that the crowd can essentially shout them down. Yeah, for the studio show, it's decorum is so important for the performers, and so you sort of have to have some complicity from the crowd to also have some de- decorum. I don't remember how we start <laughs> for the longest time. We were, we were being, we were being focused on having, you know, sort of catchphrases. It was, it was all very mundane, but very practiced. And now we're trying to expand a little bit. And I am yeah. such a bubblehead that it's, it's, it puts a lot of stress on uh Chizuk over here. Oh, no doubt. But I mean, I mean, any, anything, any artistic endeavor is just real trial and error. I mean, wrestling is no different. It's the same thing. Oh, dope. Fuck you, this shit suck. That's what I thought of his rock band playing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's excellent. For the longest time, I uh, swore by the microphones that came with rock band and guitar hero. <laughs> oh, nice. They had an uncanny like clarity to them as USB microphones. We could have a dog explosion out of the blue that uh, occasionally happens. So, just bangers. <laughs> 